Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN, Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? He's trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. Uh, you could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> good morning, good evening, good night, Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel listeners here on the MBN. I'm here with my co-host, Kimo Fontakidis, and our very special guest, James Hyde, who I must have known for like 10, 12, maybe even longer years now. And James is the uh, former CEO and founder of James and James Fulfillment. And James, I could try to introduce you um, more than I have already, but why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners as you would to a total stranger who, for some extraordinary reason, hasn't heard of you already? Okay. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll start, I think, with the quick backstory of the business, um, which, which is never as quick as I think, but it's probably probably worth saying for, for context. So we, uh, I started the company with another James, uh, which is why it's called James and James. Uh, and we were both kind of unemployed out of uni, uh, looking for some work to do. We had some other projects to try and go into, which didn't really come to very much. Um, and we got some part-time jobs. Uh, kind of minimum wage part-time jobs uh, just for some cash to pay the bills uh, and some of that was working for a honey company uh, doing office admin so I was just sort of answering the phone placing orders uh, doing some of the work and they had a fulfillment company which we struggled a bit uh, with managing some of the inventories so you never quite knew how much was in stock a lot of excel reports being sent across every week and it being quite hard just to get a handle on on what was happening we tried to move that to a better business and we really struggled trying to find this is back in 2010 we really struggled trying to find a company that was doing fulfillment for online so that's the picking packing and putting in the post of online kind of sales that had an online system uh, which seems mad doesn't it but it was very much offline uh, and we naively thought we'd, we'd build our own software company write software and build our own warehouse system uh, but to, to do that you needed to kind of show it worked so we set up a miniature warehouse just to do the honey company's fulfillment as a first customer to kind of prove the platform it turned out very hard to sell the software but very easy to sell the fulfillment service um, and then we grew from two people in a small shed uh, to sort of 200 people in a very very large shed uh, in multiple sheds actually one in the uk one in the us now one in europe looking at australia um and now only now oh, that's crazy that's years, huge yeah, and only now after 12 years going back to selling software, actually now looking at um, licensing the platform back out as we originally intended. Wow. And so 200 people, like what were they mostly doing? Are these mostly software engineers or are there people developing the, the, uh, the platform or what? So, off the, so it's over 200 people now. There are, I think, about 20, 20 software engineers, um, then probably another 50, 60 people, sort of office staff, so management, um, leadership team, customer service, uh, support staff. And then the remaining sort of 150 plus are actually picking packing. Um, so actually part of the fulfillment oh, wow. team picking, picking the orders. Hmm. And are you, are, you, are you still a shareholder? I know you had a big, uh, well, a big, I understand it. Um, I inferred it's big, uh, but I don't know whether it was public. Uh, you had a private equity investment or a VC investment? Yeah, we did. We did have a private equity investment. Uh, I am still a major shareholder, not majority anymore, but still a major shareholder in the business. 
Mm. And do you still work there, or, or you said you were looking back at software, or have you have you sort of put that chapter of your life? Obviously, if you're still a major shareholder, then you still are highly incentivized to make sure things carry on going well, right? Yeah, exactly. So I still have a board seat in the the top holding company. Um, I we hired a CEO, so we hired a new CEO about two years ago, uh, and since then my role has kind of gradually progressed um, to where it is now, looking at sort of product. Where does the product need to go and what do we do? So I, I do that one day a week um, and then looking at other opportunities uh, and potentially other kind of scale-up non-exec roles uh, the rest of the time. And, and just in terms of, I, I don't know what you can share, can you give it sort of like headline numbers, like in, you've given the number of employees, but like revenue or what the valuation was when you took in the investment? If you can't share it, don't, but if you can just... Uh, yeah, so I can give some of this to public. So uh, the... I think the valuation when LDC invested was around 20 million, give or mm-hmm. take. Um, mm-hmm. And turnover now is probably two and a half times that. So we're now about 50 million turnover this year. In GB pounds? Yeah, 50 million okay. pounds. Yeah. The, the, U, the UK is a country to the north of, the north of France, for any of our listeners who don't, who don't know that. <laughs> we, do have a, we do have a couple of sites in the US, uh, one in Ohio, one in Las Vegas, if that makes it close to home. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Most of our listeners are in the US. I'm, but I, I, I'm, I'm like you. I, I'm fascinating in in, in in unpacking this story because I love I love it. First of all, I love the two to two hundred to basically from nothing bootstrapped with an idea. So you got to tell us a little bit more about how you did that. Um, you know, and how, you know a little bit about the journey. I mean, so like, so you you gave the intro, but then <laughs> you basically said, yeah, you guys set it up. Uh, this was your idea. You set up. We'll do the software around our own thing, and then it turned into a two hundred person company. So there, there's, there's like a, there's a space in between. I would love to get some more color on, like, how did you? So basically, it was the first. It was the two of you uh, to begin with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we and then, were... like, when did you? How long did it take to get like the first employee? And who was the first? Like, who was the first person you hired? And why did you hire that person? And then, so... like, slowly. Yeah, so we started off, we had to build an office because we rented part of a, a warehouse that didn't have any space. So we had to build ourselves a, a plasterboard kind of shed in the corner. Um, <laughs> that work. And there's lots of stories around like the internet not working. We're having to borrow Wi-Fi off someone. Sorry, what street. year is this? This is what uh, year? Did you give us 2010, 2010. Okay, 2010. Okay. Um, yeah, so we had BT dial-up internet, which is just terrible. <laughs> uh, so we were borrowing Virgin Media Wi-Fi. We were borrowing it off some a lady, our first employee. So we... We'll go back a bit. So we started, um, we'd work for the honey company in the morning. So I'd still do my office admin job, answering the phone, processing orders and everything else yeah. for another company. Uh, and James right. Strachan, who's uh, the other co-founder, he would do some software development on their website in the mornings. And then the afternoon, we'd pick and pack the orders at lunchtime, put them in the post, and then I'd spend the afternoon cold calling. And then James would spend the afternoon actually coding the platform. Um, building the right, software. So, first of all, I love this. I love this. Just to make it clear, if people didn't understand, you were actually doing all the, like, basically the two of you did all the jobs. Like basically you split all the, the, all the jobs that could possibly be done, including yeah. the manual labor of packing and sending yes. it to the post and all that. Yeah. 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 We've got awesome. some good pictures. Um, we've got some good pictures <laughs> of, of James's car completely bursting with post where it's just in the, in the passenger seat, in the back seats, in the boot. By the way, we, we have a we have a new, we have a newsletter. If you send any, if you can send us any nice, entertaining yeah. photos, we, <laughs> might, we might put them. We might put them because it's, it's it's basically to drive downloads. But we have a a Substack newsletter we send out, and I think a few nice pictures would would add to add color oh, to I'll our comments on this. Some funny pictures across. 
Um, so we we started doing that, and and then we had to hire. We decided to hire someone, um, and it was a resident that lived in the street opposite, and they they just um, they worked like three or four hours a day, just picking packing for us. So we didn't have to spend quite so long right. picking, picking exactly. orders at the low hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah, um, and they luckily lived so close that when we had so many issues with, with internet, uh, we paid for them to have Virgin Fiber to their house, and then we put a, a long range Wi-Fi on the back of their bedroom. Uh, and one on the side of the, the so building funny. so we could sort of beam it across the car park which was equally unreliable but it gave you two unreliable <laughs> but it gave stuff. you a sense exactly it gave you a sense of something i have to ask because I, I a little bit earlier than you i also was doing a business that had to do, that was very similar i had to go to the post office a lot i was packing things and sending them all over the world but back then i'm talking what, what about when you got to the post office like the efficiency there i mean like like I had to like, I think I got a franking machine at one point so that I could like automatically stamp the, the stuff. But I, like, if you're doing a lot of it, like what were they, cause you know, were they set up for handling you? Or well, not? So, then, so we quickly got to the point where we, we'd integrate with Royal Mail. So all the files and everything would get sent to Royal Mail electronically. Okay. So all you had to do was drop the post off. Um, okay. But the local post office did get, if it was more than three or four bags, they would look at you a bit like, are you really going to leave all that in this tiny shop? Um, but the Royal Mail have a policy where they won't collect from you unless you've got a minimum spend. And it's like, well, we're, yeah. you know, the minimum spend isn't based on your run rate. Your minimum spend is based on what you did in the last 12 months. So it's like, well, I'm not paying for right. the collection. They can right. have, you know, so we were kind of a lot of arguing going on with the corner shop about how much post they had to have. Before, <laughs> before so did you have to dig it up and go, go to the next? We'll give you a collection. Yeah. And, yeah. and actually, for any entrepreneurs listening, if when, you know if you do something and by a miracle it starts going really well really early, it's very funny where the sort of people who deal with small customers get really annoyed with you. You're becoming too big for them because you're, yeah. you're, you're you're sort of you're not big enough yet to get on the sort of corporate handling corridor. Yeah, you, yeah. you can't keep leaving that post or here. I, had a, I, I just had tell, tell a, I, I tell a story when I was eight years old and I was selling lollipops and, and bubble gum in my prep school in Oxford. Um, I didn't know about warehouses back then, unfortunately, cash and carriers back then, unfortunately, that no one had told me they existed. So my sister, I wanted to buy 150 lollipops at the school, the shop near her school, because it was because they had better prices than the one near my school. And they were and they got really angry with her because of the people who worked behind the counter didn't own it. And they just got annoyed with someone trying to spend to buy 150 <laughs> lollipops because it was too too big an order to handle, which is a bit of a diversion. Um, did, did you raise? Well, no, I want to. I have to add my diversion story too because it's just too appropriate for this. So, like, I had the I had the ladies in the Polish post office do me a favor. So I was like, had a newsletter, like an international newsletter, and I was trying to send it out to the U.S. I was trying to sell it. I was sending out like copies to the U.S. and a newsletter has some level of like the timeliness of it is kind of important. And so I had sent this like I don't know two hundred newsletters out. Expensive. I wanted to do. Uh, you know, airmail to the, all the U.S. and I come back and the and 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 they're sent and I'm like, but wh why is it so much cheaper? And she's like, oh no, I did you a favor. You didn't want to send all those airmail. I sent them by sea. It's much cheaper. <laughs> so she basically <laughs> saved me. Like, but it completely did, didn't understand the idea of like I'm trying to get this there fast for for business basically. And so, but anyway, like I just think that there's the small shop thing has that's another side of the small shop. But anyway, that's that's an entrepreneur. That's uh, that's what happens when, as Richard said, when you when you end up with a lot of stuff and small, you know, and, and you have to deal with like the small counter person who's not used to having so much. Anyway, that's hilarious. Sorry, take it from there, basically. Um, yeah. So we we got to the point where 
we eventually gave up the kind of the, the jobs at the health food company selling the honey uh, to work full time in the business. Uh, we hired another employee that works full time to help sort of picking packing in. And through can all I, the can sales. I, can process, I, can, can, so yeah. can I jump in and just talk about your first customer? Because obviously you, you started with your honey company, honey yeah. company customer who in a way I and mean, it counts but it doesn't count because you it wasn't a typical sales process at all but was what was was it like a first customer or uh, the customer that made you both realize this actually may really work because quite often at the beginning to begin with you think you wonder if you're crazy and then there's that moment where you begin to feel this might work at least I, I, yes yeah, so you we, talk us through that well we were originally trying to sell the platform so we were trying to sell the software platform for people to use themselves because we were you know how how this is working and i guess we quickly realized that lots of inquiries either didn't want to pay for the software because they wanted it for free or very cheap or they wanted the software but they also wanted all this custom other work done to it which we didn't want to support because we wanted to build you know a cloud-based platform that wasn't completely bespoke for every every client but we had quite a few people saying i really like the idea but can you just do it for me and i think one of the problems and benefits of bootstrapping is you are forced, you know, in those early days, you are forced to take the journey of least resistance. Um, and so you kind of forced to go, fine, then look, we'll just do it for you because it, you know, it's another point that proves the platform works. It's better to have, a, it's easier to sell the software if you've got more customers using it than it is if you've only got one. So we had a, a company doing brew, homebrew equipment, um, tins of homebrew, corks, bungs, you know, demijohns, all those kind of uh, equipment. Um, and they were based in South London looking to kind of semi-retire. And this was their way out of, of doing it themselves so they could outsource everything to us and just manage the online shop from home. Uh, and that was one that was our biggest customer by a long way. Our fifth customer they were, but they were by far, you know, more orders than anybody else was shipping up by a long way. Um, and that was the beginning of the end of us not really bothering to sell the software anymore and just finding more and more people that wanted fulfillment because the, we were making, you know, not lots of cash, but margin wise, we were making quite good profit. It was scaling well. And I don't think we really had a plan. Um, the plan was to make some money and sell something. And this was selling, uh, you know, it was, it was quite easy to sell. So when you hear a startup guru saying you've got to start with a mission and vision, your mission and vision was make your make some money and sell something. You know, although we had an investment, we've never I've never run or been involved with a business that's had, you know, a huge amount of startup cash. But I could see how easy it would be if you've got an idea and a load of cash to pursue an idea without any regard for how many people actually want to buy it. Mm. You know, because you believe in the idea and actually when you're forced to have to sell something, uh, you're really forced to listen to what people want to buy. Totally, totally. And did you have angel investors? Because I think I, I think the reason I knew about you was through Peter Cowley, which suggested me, was he a friend or an, a, one of a group of angel investors? Well, so Peter was an angel investor, although I think he invested £3,000, which was a token gesture. Uh, it was a token gesture investment so that he could actually buy some some shares, you know, through um, through it being a financial transaction. Um, so I, you know, I think the I think he got a hundred x return or something silly. Uh, it was over a hundred x return on that, and I think that's because he bought in at a fairly good price at the time. Um, so Peter came on really as a non-exec chair and an advisor to the company to help us grow. So we didn't have a portfolio of angels. It, it wasn't like a you know, cash lump sum. Um, but he was very good at knowing contacts and knowing 
the foibles of, of, of growing and scaling a business. Hmm. So, so and just just to make sure we understand that, at what stage did you think you needed it? Because three thousand quid, even even at the beginning, isn't that much money in Britain in twenty twelve or whenever it was. No, so, I think so, I think our turnover was about two or three hundred thousand pound when we invested. So hmm. yeah, I mean three thousand pound was was not meaningful in any way really to the company. Um, but I had actually done a I had done a pitch to the Cambridge Angels, and the pitch was we don't want any money. We're not looking for investment, but what we do want is some experienced people to help us grow the company. You know, we're profitable. We were profitable pretty much from day one, bearing in mind we only worked full time from the point we had, you know, enough customers to support a basic little minimum wage salary. Um, so we didn't feel like we needed investment and the company was growing at two or 300% per annum anyway. Um, looking back, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Would investment investment would have probably grown us quicker and possibly professionalized the business faster. I don't know if we had the experience to manage much more growth than that. And I don't know whether dilution would have been worth it. No. Well, I want to touch on two, <clears throat> two things that you, so uh, maybe first the, uh, you, you mentioned something that I think is really important for startup people and people that entrepreneurs that, that start something. Now I, I, I fall into the camp such as yourself without having the full plan. Basically, I was just take you know try to do the next thing that made sense and that would make mm. the business more valuable and more money. But but I but I but what spoke to me is that, uh, that I heard you say that basically you'd follow. Basically, what I understood is basically you were going to do whatever the clients wanted. So if the clients needed this, you're going to do it. If the clients needed that, you're going to do it. And then finally, at some point, you realize, hey, hold on a second. This idea of the software—it's better to actually basically have a service. I guess you you decided to have a service business, which uh, software is a service as well. But whatever, let's say it's a, a service business instead. And like that's that's one really key moment is focus. So th then, did did you just did you just at which point was this the point when you when you had that client, or was there some point that you said, okay, hold on a second, this is. Let's focus because it's great to get the money and to grow, but then I think it's equally important for to to to, to start to focus on because otherwise you're never going to be great at anything, right? So you then you yeah, think, then did did that happen or, or? I think I think that customer is probably the point at which like you know what let's just grow the service company. We'll worry about the software side later. Like we'll come back to that. Um, I don't think it's probably I probably not explained well that. We weren't like doing anything the customer wanted. We had lots of customers said, oh, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And we would say, no, you know, we're not doing that. We right. don't want to do that. And that was okay. from a really principle point of view that, you know, whether it was them using the software or us using the software didn't matter. But what mattered is we had some really strong principles about how the software would work, that it would be multi-tenant, that it would be uh, every customer gets the same features, that we right. build features that were for the collective benefit of all users. Right. Right. You know, we weren't going to build something really specialist in niche for only one user right. because that didn't scale. Right. So there was quite right. a lot of kind of criteria put around how the software would be built. And I guess we went, yeah, probably at that fifth customer saying, you know what, let's just grow a service business because once you've got a really big service business, well, that really proves the software works, then it will be easier to sell the software. And so I guess it was always <laughs> delaying that, you know, and that then it will be easier okay. to sell the software. It kind of happened, yeah, I mean, that was delayed for like a decade because uh, provided the company kept growing every year, it always never seemed necessary. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's it's remarkable, and you know, I think particularly for people listening, you know, it's it's a question of like keeping the that sort of antenna on that you know you can be very focused on the thing you want to do, but suddenly if you get like treble your annual revenue from, I mean, your annual revenue might might only be fifteen or twenty thousand pounds forecast, but if suddenly yeah. someone shows up, obviously a fifty pound fifty thousand pound contract as a single person, you think, wow, well, how many more of them are there? And if there are a lot of yeah. them out there, <laughs> exactly. you know, the opportunity is kind of obvious, right? Yeah, and it's interesting. I'm working with another company at the moment and they've got a product where they've got a solution, should I say, and there's three or four different service products that it could be. And they still keep flipping depending on like which customer came on last month because they'll get a big customer on one side and go, oh yeah, we'll go and do this. And then there's another customer that becomes a bit annoying. And then someone else pops up wanting a different service with the same product. And they're paying more money and it seems easier to service. And so I think that product market fit is an evolution. It does take quite a long time to really understand Where's the biggest market? Mm. And I mean, right, and what's your strengths? And part of it is like, what are your strengths? I mean, like, what are your strengths exactly? And what do they suit best? Because you may identify a market you're not able to fulfill as better as something else. That you're whatever better suited to. Yeah. And I'm not sure to what extent your software, but I'm sure you could have developed your software in lots of different ways. And and there was a lot of pressure on you. I'm sure all the clients were like, I want this, I want that, yeah. like, whatever. Uh, and then sometimes you had to say yes, and sometimes you had to say no, basically. I think having having I think Kieran, having a, a set of principles that you apply is the best way of dealing that. So there's no there's not a rule book of what you will or won't say yes to, but there's a principle that says, you know, this is, is the it principle. Within, is it within my yeah, mm. is it within my principles, right? Yeah. That makes yeah. Sense. And, and, and in terms of your sort of competitive advantage, I was very struck because I visited you pretty in the early days and you already had quite an impressive warehouse, but I, I can't, it must have been sort of 2013, 14, I suppose. I, I can't remember exactly, but I'm just because you're already at some scale when I, I visited um, you and at that stage, I was very struck by the efficiencies. You know, you're really, really focused on you know minimizing manual work and making things as efficient as possible. And so, to some extent, you were capturing the benefits of your own automation and compared to perhaps other people doing the same thing who weren't as efficient. Quite often with the software company, the customer gets all the benefits of the automation, and you you have more and more expensive software if you don't have enough competition. And did did you sort of have a sense that your operations were more efficient than competitors and obviously the big the big monster in this marketplace would be fulfilled by amazon so can you just talk a bit about the the reasons why you think people came to you because it's not that you had no competition uh well so fulfilled by amazon is is a non-competing product in a way although although it on the face of it does the same thing um fulfillment by amazon is very well priced i mean it's incredibly well priced it's, um it's only very well priced if you sell on Amazon. And and back back then, you know, if you sold on Amazon, you would get, a, I think it was a Lathwaite's wine voucher in pretty much every box. And you'd get, you know, Amazon on the side of the box and it'd be very much sold by Amazon. And still to this moment today, you know, the retailer doesn't even get to know the email address or the phone number of the customer. Mm-hmm. They just get an Amazon account ID that, you know, is who they're emailing. So for a lot of the brands we were working for and still work for today, you know, they're direct to, to consumer. They're very much about their interaction with their consumer brand. So some of them do sell on Amazon, um, sometimes a bit of customer acquisition, but most of them sell on their own store and they want the product to be sent out very much from them and they want to have that relationship with the customer. And so in a way, although it's an, I think Amazon's fulfillment is an alternative for Amazon sellers to us, but what we were offering was a very different solution to what Amazon offer. Um, as far as the practicality of it. And there was competition, you know, 2010, there were other fulfillment companies, 
Um, but I think I, I think it's true. You know, when we started, we were probably I think we were still the first pure cloud-based fulfillment platform that existed. Hmm. Okay. Um, so, so in fact, uh, so the, maybe there was less competition than I imagined. I was aware of a company called Shipwire. I think was one that I don't know. But so basically, the- Ship, Shipwire are very big in the US um, and the UK offering. The UK offering at the time, I, I don't know how much it's improved. I've still not heard great things. But at the time, there was a warehouse in in Scotland that they used through a partner scheme. But it was very much a partner on a very long railway. So the customer support, you know, as far as a UK offering, I think we were the only one in the UK um, offering something comparable. So you had first, basically, you had first mover advantage in a rapidly growing e-commerce space. So yeah. and we probably so, had so, that. We probably had that advantage for the first four or five years. Hmm. Um, and would you say that, did you have a sense that this was a, a sort of, you'd stumbled into a lucky opportunity? Were you sort of aware of the fact that you knew that sooner or later other people were going to wake up or and, and you know, it wasn't always going to be as as fat margins as it was when you, you got a No, I think we knew, we knew other companies would wake up. I mean, the industry is notoriously quite slow to innovate. Um, and it did take, it probably took, you know, at least five years, if not seven years for people to really, you know, start offering something very comparable from a software side. I think that's that's one of the questions then, like should we have taken investment earlier on to grow and scale? Because the first two or three years are very much around finding your feet and understanding the problem and understanding, you know, what the, we started off quite naively thinking it'd be really quick and easy to build a software platform to do this and hadn't thought through just how complicated, you know, you think you pick an item from the shelf, you put it in a box and you post it. It sounds so simple. When you start doing tens of thousands of parcels a day and there's so many complexities, like even charging for storages, we had buckets that stacked and people then, you know, wanted to pay, you know, how do you account for the fact we charge storage by the by the cubic foot or the cubic meter? Well, you put buckets inside each other, they, they kind of stack. So it's like you have to put now, a, you know, a variable in for stack ratio for certain products. And if they're in the same location, then you have to create the stack ratio to create it. And it's like, there's so many of these little edge cases that you have to build in that I think the product became a lot bigger, um, a lot bigger than we thought. And, and so, yeah, w- would investment have got us first mover advantage, more first mover advantage for a kind of a longer growth period? I don't know. Mm. Um, one of the things that has, you know, and testament to James Strachan in it and amazed me is I see so many companies now that are kind of pure SaaS companies and the product is very simple. You look at some of the um, the parking apps and you've got to take registration plate, you know, time of parking and the car park number. And that's kind of the app. And then I look at fulfillment. You know, we've got an order management platform, a carrier management platform. Like there's a warehouse management platform, all the inventory controls, all the integrations, all the different shopping carts. The size of the platform is just vast. And you think, feel like we're really hard done by because we chose, you know, to build a hugely extensive platform with a very, very small team. It's like, if only we'd built some kind of SaaS platform that only had like three input fields, it'd be so simple. Mm. So it's more complex than perhaps <clears throat> any other similar seeming product. And can you talk a bit about the the person? I mean, you, you look reasonably relaxed and happy, but were there sort of moments along the journey where you were sort of ripping your hair out that were much... Because I and so you're obviously 
pretty much would be described as a success story. You put a startup, build a startup, it was profitable, took some cash out when you you had an exit round, you're still a shareholder, still doing well. But, you know, were there moments in the journey which were like impossibly hard and you sort of struggled with that you could share like the difficulties? Because it's quite quite important not to put it in a bed of roses. Um, I, I have a lot of respect for people who are older, that have a job and quit their job to start a company. You know, where they've got a mortgage and they've got you know outgoings. And when we started the company, we we're pretty much straight out of university, used to living in student halls that were pretty rough, you know, and, and not used to having any cash. So, it, you know, it was very stressful. It was very all the things you mentioned about. You know, most days were, and, and, and my younger self probably a lot less, uh, a lot less good at hiding the stress. You know, I'd probably let out a fist of fist of rage every now and again at just how 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 terrible the world could be that these things go wrong um but actually because we didn't need the cash i think we probably enjoyed the journey quite a lot so mm. you know there were there were moments when we ran out of office space and we had the gents and the ladies lose converted into offices by putting tables over the toilets and things because like that was just a solution and it's kind of fun at the time you don't really think about it you couldn't do that i think now uh i think it would be uh, quite difficult and uh, so i guess yeah, it was a very stressful time, but I think the stress was kind of, I think we thrived on the stress and the challenge of doing it. I think to do that later in life, I don't know if you'd be, if you actually had genuine commitments to have to pay, uh, whether that stress would be as enjoyable. Hmm. And that's, uh, the, you, 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 sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to, going to say that, you know, was there a time when the culture changed? Obviously, one of the advantages of bootstrapping culture is sort of lean and meanness that everyone who works in the organization realizes that it's not you know there isn't some nice generous or a seemingly seemingly generous fund who's put lots of money in so you don't start with the pot plants and the you know and the music and everything yeah. but yeah but was there a time as the company started becoming more successful where that it was harder to keep that cult- culture in place or did you manage to sort of keep the lid on you know i think the, when we took external investment it I hasn't changed the culture completely, um, but it has changed the culture slightly. Uh, I think the risk profile of investors is very different, especially private equity investors is very different. Um, you know, for a long time, our cybersecurity policy was, if no one knows the, if, if only our clients know the URL to log on, you know, as long as you've got the basics covered, it's very unlikely you're gonna get hacked because, you know, if no one can find it and no one knows where you are and you're a very small company, then kind of doesn't matter that much. You've got backups for everything. You know, the worst that happens is you have to resurrect everything from backups, which you test. So there's a level of, you know, there's a level of planning to make sure it's protected. But it's also, we didn't really spend any money on security. You know, we did the stuff you needed to do at the minimum and then we didn't spend any more. And then now we go through, you know, quarterly pen tests and we have external people come in and audit it and we pay for all these different software packages and everything else to protect it. Um, because it's, it's a bigger risk, I guess, financially and it's seen as you know something that institutional investors can't if they were to screw up and we've got hacked and something bad happened it would seem very embarrassing for them to have not done the basic you know the due diligence or we'll we'll just pay all this money to all these consultants Um, but I think as a bootstrapping company you know that the idea of paying a load of consultants to come and check up on stuff like that seems very counterintuitive Keeman, you go ahead. I've been asking too many questions. Yeah, I mean, you've just been rattling off like five in a row now, so just trying to like get a, get my, get a word in here, Mr. Lucas. Um, 
I, I you've been alluding uh, multiple times, James, to well, actually, initially you were alluding to actually uh, talking to the Cambridge uh, Angels, uh, mm. but not not to get money to get. I think great hair experience or whatever, like more senior experience and how to develop your business. And I guess I'm wondering, cause your story is actually very similar. It feels very similar to mine in a lot of ways. And um, basically as a, as a young, basically I also was a young entrepreneur without doing anything like sounds similar. Like I didn't have a lot of like work experience and I just went and I was figuring it out as I went along. And at some point it got to the point where I was like, well, you know, yeah, that's great. I got this thing started, but I would like, to get some people to really know how to do like like senior people with experience. And that's what it sounded like you were talking about with the, with the Cambridge Angels. Yeah. Did you end up, and, and sorry, you also mentioned a little bit about paying consultants. I actually started paying consultants exactly for that, to just to get some like other senior, whatever experience opinions about various different aspects of, of, of the business. Did you ha did you ever tackle that, or did you just go it alone the whole way, or how did you? No, no, no. So we, did, I wasn't. I think my my it was more my point on the kind of consulting thing was more around like when you get you know PwC and to audit your finances and it's oh, like okay. well, right, 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 right. Okay, does that really add any value? It wasn't just <laughs> the useless consultants. So, you know, yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's you know. Uh, no, I mean we had we we had so for sales, you know, we got someone in to help coach us on how to sell. We eventually hired that person part time, you know, as a part time salesperson because we realized we didn't know, you know, we knew how to sell, we could sell, but we realized there's people out there that know more than us. I think Peter coming in was that question. You know, we kind of, we kind of, we, we didn't know how to run a company. We deduced how to run a company, but being engineers and looking at the principles of like, well, how must this work? You know, we have to pay these people, they do this and this kind of, oh, that kind of makes sense. We'll do it this way. Uh, but I think we were aware at an early stage that we didn't have all of the answers for how to run a business. You know, there were lots of things in there that we knew as we scaled, we'd have, you know, HR, just, you know, legislation and things like that that we'd have to address and knowing when's the appropriate time to address it. Um, and I think that's really important for small companies because it's very easy. It's very easy. I mean, I've seen other companies growing where, you know, you do need to put in like board structure. Peter helped us put in a board structure, you know, minutes and everything else in there. Sorry, it's the dog just pushing his way into the room behind me. Um, <laughs> but Peter helped like put board structure and things in that made us more professionalized as a company that we probably wouldn't have done but likewise if we'd done it too early we would have spent all that time building all the bureaucracy and not building the product and I think knowing when when is that level of bureaucracy suitable is, is an important question to learn I think that's that's very very wise and I, th I think the you know certainly a mistake I made was not to bring in uh, sort of go to people and I think what you did of going to the investor group and saying we don't really need your money but we need your gray hair so we'll sell you a little bit of equity if you if you come and help us is is a very smart move but the, the time to do that is when you already know it's working because then you can get a decent valuation because yeah. the gray hair is not going to want to put in too much time and you know even if it's yeah so this sort of three thousand pound deal to give Peter a hundred x is um is quite uh but that's probably paid for itself many times over by not making catastrophic mistakes in, I don't know, your senior executive compensation system or whatever down the line or something like that, perhaps. Yeah, I think I think it was. I think Peter definitely added the value that that you know that he took out. Mm. And changing tack a bit, you 
you you and the other James were Cambridge University graduates who were at the time when your colleagues might have been working for you know PA Technology in Melbourne or you know Goldman Sachs in London. You were labeling up honey and stuff like that. Was your were, were in terms of your family or the expectations you had of yourself or other people had of you? Was the route you chosen you chose a bit surprising? Uh, either to yourself or to others, and how did you deal with that? If some people disapprove and say, "Why don't you get a proper job, James?" Someone must have thought um, that. Or you know, I didn't, that. Didn't, didn't get a lot of that. I met my wife um, while I was working, and I never, I never really thought much of it. But you know, looking back and talking to her, I guess the fact I was still living in like a bedroom that was smaller than a cupboard, you know, in some kind of rented house, when friends of mine were earning, you know, six-figure salaries in London. It probably was a bit strange uh it was never questioned at the time like no one's ever really questioned it and i i think having worked i've done some work experience in a couple of very you know a couple of companies i just having left uni never really felt the desire to work in an office you know doing long hours um i don't know what it was about it but there was just it wasn't appealing um I think I enjoyed the kind of creating and making and solving problems, and there's less of that. There was a couple of jobs uh, that I was looking at that were kind of like manufacturing uh, process engineering. So you'd go into a company, look at a production system, and then try and try and work out how you can make it more efficient or work out how to make it run faster as kind of consultancy. But I think it looked exciting on the face of it, but you you could tell that it was going to become one of those trudge of jobs after, you know, six, 12 months. Mm. So, so in other words, and that's an important insight. So, basically, you know, for people listening, it's a, it's a, it may not be for everyone, but simply not caring what other people. Think. You know, if if it appealed to you, good. If it didn't appeal to you, you're not going to do it. It's quite a sort of entrepreneurial mindset. You weren't driven by the desire to impress impress other people. You you just no, wanted to have an we, inter- you wanted an interesting life. Yeah, and we didn't start the company again. We, you know, we had we had a business plan. Of course, we did. You know, we'd we'd written down some financials and made sure it worked. But we didn't have a plan to create a company with an X million pound exit. It wasn't like, mm. right, we're going to get rich. We're going to go and do this. We're going to build this company. Mm. Uh, it was, here's a problem that needs solving. Let's build something cool that's going to solve this problem. And let's try and scale it to make as much money as, you know, as we can. But the money almost, the money almost was just a measure of how well you were solving the problem. It wasn't, mm. you know, it wasn't like we were doing it because we had a certain monetary target in, involved. Um, and, and, and again, there's different people do different things on there. Yeah, and flipping it back earlier about and, and so basically, I sort of picked up how your attitude. But in terms of family, were, were they surprised that you set up a business? And when you were a teenager, did you ever? And before you went to university, when you were a kid, did you have like, did you have that feeling that you might end up doing your own thing, or was it just a sort of bit of a random walk? I think it's just a bit of a random walk. I mean, before before uni, I was always interested in like making things, but like physically making, like you know, engineering, kind of building, uh, designing, kind of you know machines and, and and things like that and I always thought I was going to product design not software product design I mean like physical product design that was what I was interested in um so yeah it was kind of yeah it's kind of just a chance I guess that it happened hmm. interesting um Keeman what do you think what, what 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 have you got to interrogate more on this no I'm curious I mean so basically you got here um and like, so at which point did you really seriously start to think about the private equity and actually making the next? 
that's a huge decision, right? I mean, like you built your business up yeah, and, so, and you're still very young. So like what drove you, like what was the impetus there? I was like, were you just, you wanted a new challenge? Um, I think what do you want to sell? And I think we both looked at it and said, well, we're not going to sell. You know, we really enjoy working in the company. You know, why would we ever sell any of the company? Why would we take investment? Right. You know, it's kind of, yeah. you know, we enjoy what we do. We just keep doing it. Um, and then Peter kind of said, well, you know, there will be a point at which it makes sense to take some cash out and to, you know, how much cash do you want to live? And, you know, what would you need to take out if you wanted to, you know, have a different, like do other things. And I think that, I think our both, you know, James and myself's reaction to that was very much like, well, we don't really want to, we we'll just keep doing this. It's fun. Um, and it probably took well over a year of having that conversation backwards and forwards to actually go, yeah, you know what? There probably is a point. I think for me, there was a point thinking, you know, maybe it would be worth having an investor come in, having some sort of, you know, still want to do this, but maybe it's not forever. Um, I think James Strachan got quite frustrated with, you know, he came in as an engineering role, you know, building solutions and, and doing coding. And in a small company and startup, you can do that and it's really fun. And even the size we were getting to, you know, 100 employees it was becoming less fun because actually, you know, as senior leaders in the company, most of your time is spent dealing with people. Uh, and I was at a talk the other day and somebody said, you know, there's two types of problems in companies. There's people problems and there's problems that you don't know yet are people problems. Um, and I was like, yeah, that, that's probably true. Uh, all your time is spent dealing with problems, which absolutely people problems. And I think that was quite a distraction for James. And he was very much kind of like, well, why don't we just stop growing a company and we just keep it as it is and just kind of enjoy running it day to day. Um, uh, and my view and Peter's view is very much that, well, if you stop growing, it's probably only going to go one way. Probably only mm -hmm. going to, you know, get swallowed up or disappear or stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that point, James kind of took a, decided to exit from the company, uh, not entirely, but a bit further to, to take kind of, part-time non-exec role uh that's the point then we took some private equity on to help kind of grow the next journey and then and then i think i've kind of done the same thing i've got i my threshold is probably a bit higher for how much do i want to be dealing with people problems <laughs> <laughs> so i was probably a couple of years behind james but i think we've both come to the same outcome but you've gotten there now so but you're because as you said i think at the beginning you said you're doing a week a day a week is that right yeah so then what are you or like what is it what what, what what do you want to do you're so young and you got all this talent and i guess some funds to invest what, what, what's the next uh what do you want to so, do for me you know I've looked at all, what do i do yeah what do you want to do what what kind of interests me i think what interests me most is taking that company that's like five or 20 people and how do you scale it to that 50 to 100 mark because for me, that's the most interesting bit. When you've got product market fit, and it's how do you commercialize the product? How do you optimize, and build a sales process? How do you like, optimize and build like the support process in the background? Uh, what's how do you market the product? How do you bring out like the proposition in a way that really makes a difference and brand it and the kind of internal culture? How do you build all those things? They were the most, you know, the, the first couple of years of a startup, a hard graft with not a lot to show for it other than you've got a product that now works and it didn't before. But I think for me, the bit that's really rewarding is, is taking a product that's kind of MVP and then scaling it into something that's uh, a lot bigger. Is that your dog scratching itself? Yeah, he's uh, it's molting <laughs> season at the moment and uh, everything's covered in fur.
yeah um we're a dog friendly we're a dog friendly podcast so then yeah. <laughs> um and, and and in terms of your sort of personal business model what, yeah i mean do you and how do you decide which ones you get involved in obviously if you come on a podcast like this someone might write to you but do you, do you want to <laughs> yeah. be, uh, seriously i mean it may happen but but do, do you um do you go out looking or do people come to you, or well, I've, do you only, I've only it's only the last two months i've been doing a day a week um, so it's very early days. I've got I've got one company I've been working with. Uh, no, then you don't you don't want the, yeah. We, I don't want to get on the list of people like your wife and, and mother asking the same question. What are you going to do now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that has been asked. I, I didn't realize it was so fresh. I, I sort of sort of imagined that it was longer that you were doing it. No, no, it's it's not been too long. So I've, I've been doing some mentoring of local businesses for a couple of years now, on and off, some pro bono, you know, just to help other companies. Um, uh, you know, the things for me, I think that it's been good. Like, we always said when we started the company, we had a couple of rules. That, you know, we didn't want to work with anything that was perishable because we just realized that perishable goods is just a nightmare. Um, we didn't really want to deal with the public because dealing with the public is generally a nightmare. So we kind of wanted to do business to business services and preferably recurring revenue services. So that's, you know, everything the company's done has, has been that model. And I think for me, you know, business to business marketing and recurring revenue are still things that, I feel like it's a really strong area of business. It's not to say I wouldn't look at consumer facing uh, or wouldn't look at non-recurring services. Um, but I think that, that I definitely have a slant towards that kind of technology enabled or, or SaaS based recurring revenue services. But, do, but, but coming, sorry, coming back to your personal business model, do you envisage like getting it's a bit like Peter getting involved in the sense of taking, putting some money in as well as your know-how and advice? Or yeah, could you just yeah be, I think could so. Because you, think... you, you probably don't need to be a consultant at X hundred pounds an hour or whatever, even if it's good for your ego. No, and that's true. Although, you know, Peter had a very big portfolio, you know, more companies, but far more companies than he could actually, you know, have much dealings with on a day-to-day basis because it was all part of the network, you know, the angel network he was in. I think for me, what's interesting is more you know working with that company and i definitely think there's good there's a good line which non-exec brings which is you get to work on really exciting challenging problems with great people and then you get to go home at night and you get to sleep you know Mm. you don't take the problems home you just solve them while you're there and i think that's that's a very privileged place to be in in life um but definitely one i think my wife would be grateful for uh after years of, of of being at the coalface so I think investing in companies is is something I'd do, but I'd also, you know, want to be involved enough that you were doing a day a month at least, you know, maybe more. Yeah, that's actually, actually what I was, that was actually my question exactly, because you strike me um, as the kind of person that's a doer rather than, yeah. like, I don't know, how, like, okay, like I personally am not really interested in having a big portfolio of companies. Like, that's just, like, that's just not, it, like, I'm not, it's no criticism against anybody that has that or does that. It's just a less interesting activity for me. I'd be more, I'd rather be involved in fewer and actually doing stuff. Yeah, I agree. Getting, getting my hands dirty. Yeah. Having and do four or five you, companies like, you're doing like each one day a month, like of getting your hand, like, or you know, one day a month you're saying of getting your hands dirty kind of thing? Yeah, or, whether it's a day a week, a day a month, I mean, you know, it varies depending on the, the stage of that company. But I think it would definitely a portfolio of four or five that you're properly invested yeah. in and actually working with the companies to grow them. Yeah. You know, if that's you wanted a portfolio of 100 investment companies, that's great, but you could just pay someone to manage that. You know, yeah, there's exactly. a go and invest in some stuff. 
And how do you cope with how, how do you cope with the free time that you've gone from being probably working more than normal? Um, I, I would imagine that you've been you've you've more not just your sort of working hours, but what you think about when you're not working. It's like when you've got your own, you're leading your own startup, you're responsible for so many things, and you're yeah. to yourself and the customers and employees and everything. But when you now you've got potentially you could like put your feet up for uh, a day or two, and the world wouldn't end. What, are you good at not doing anything? Do you have things that you've been postponing once I get out of this at last I can read or walk or play golf? or just, Yeah, or, or, lots what of do you ideas like? that never happen because there's always too many other things I find to do. I'm my own worst enemy in, in making my own stress by finding things to do that probably didn't need doing. Uh, so <laughs> I've had no that. It's been interesting working out actually because when we, in the startup phase, we were probably doing you know, 100 hours a week. Um I'd only just met my wife then, so you know I'd spend most evenings at home working till 10, 11 o'clock at night. You know, we'd spend weekends working, had nothing better to do, and you didn't really notice the hours. It was kind of enjoyable, uh, and then kind of the hours have come down, I guess, as the company got bigger and you had more people to deal with as other things and relationships and and home uh, home life. So it's kind of been a very gradual decline, probably in the last five years, to kind of vaguely normal working hours week. Um, we moved, we bought, we bought a big house in the country, which has been a lot more work than expected. So currently that has been taking up a lot of time in managing and, and repairing and doing all the other projects that we want to do here. And there's always projects to do. So there's always time sink if you want to find some time. Um, yeah, I've not been short of stuff to do, I don't think. And that will be for a while. Okay, and but you haven't had a sort of you you haven't had a, something once I once I get out of James and James, at last I can devote my time to X or Y. You, you sort of create things without a big master plan, basically. I create things. Uh, yeah, I, I'm quite. You know, I'll look at something outside and think, oh, wouldn't it be great if you could build a pergola there, and then go and buy a pergola, and then not want to bother to put it up because I've you know, in my head it's done. I've had the problem. I've solved the problem by buying this thing to go in the space, and now I just have to get it finished and then you'll buy you know then i'll go and find another problem or another project that oh, wouldn't it be great if we could do this and do something over there and so i think there's always unfinished projects for me to keep finishing um so, i probably so start projects at a greater rate than i finish them hmm. so maybe for people listening who get to your lucky situation buying a massive house in the country isn't if, if you're focusing on external productivity i mean it's you do what you, you do it for you right you do what you want so who cares whether it sort of i can sometimes because you can actually you can you can if you have too many projects create quite a lot of stress for yourself and actually i, I think i found the last couple of years probably more stressful than running a company um at times mm. it's because there's always a feeling like there's more to be done than there's hours in the day mm. So we're coming to the end of our allotted time, which is, which is, and it's been extremely interesting. If just a couple more questions, really. And if you think of the, the journey you've had and the lessons you've learned, is, is there anything that really surprised you that perhaps you think not that many entrepreneurs realize at the beginning of their journey? There's sort of things you particularly underline that, you know, just remember these one or two things because I it's going to be different. Uh, only because, you know, I heard it earlier this week, but it is very running a business is more about leadership and managing people than it is about any kind of business decision. And while business strategy, you know, business acumen plays a large part in it, actually there's some very successful entrepreneurs who are probably terrible at business, but they know how to hire a great team and they know how to motivate a great team. Um, and actually people management, the bigger the company gets, certainly when you get past 50 people, like people management 
is the biggest part. And so part of the journey from when we started being an engineer with not particularly good people skills um, has really been about like the time it takes to coach yourself or be coached in changing how you approach problems. You know, because you do as a as a founder from a startup into a scale up, you have to really approach the doing it yourself to then to telling how telling someone else how to do it, building the process and telling them to follow it, to then hiring someone to then build the process for you and to then saying, actually, this is what we need to achieve. You go and work out what we need to do. And I think that level of removal of yourself can be very hard, especially if people are good at doing Sounds like a very good <clears throat> I'm chuckling of... because you've like perfectly described, I feel like you've perfectly described me because I, I am not good at doing, <laughs> I'm literally not good at doing. I felt like that I wasn't good at doing, but the, any success that I've had is a result of actually finding really good people and finding really good teams who can actually, who can actually do it. And you ju- I think you hit actually the nail on the head. Like, uh, uh, Actually, and to be quite honest, that actually made it easier for me to to, to remove myself because I didn't feel like I was particularly like I, I was. Yeah, I'm at the other end of like, the spectrum. I'm, awesome. <laughs> I've always been good at most things I turn my hand to, especially practical things that involve problem solving. So for me, it's always a challenge to find someone that can do it as well as I think it could be. Like, it's, it's like I know how it and can that's be done. The bottle, like, done that's the classic. And that's the classic bottleneck, I think. And that's amazing that you got out of it because that's the classic bottleneck for small businesses yeah. is exactly that thing is that, well, I, it's not like it's not going to be done exactly right or exactly the way I think is right. And if you can't start to accept that good enough is good enough or that, uh, you know, there's a better there's another way that might be good, but not, you know, as good. That's a very frustrating learning curve, I tell you. That's a really <laughs> been a very frustrating learning curve. Yeah, and I think yeah. for, for people listening, that's a great a great sort of reflection on which to end. That whether you're a Keeman or a James, whether you you're not good <laughs> at doing things, but you're good at getting other people to do things, or you're a James who's really good at doing things and needs to learn how to let go. You just need to know where you are on that spectrum and have that sort of meta looking at yourself and how good you are at that or not good at that and always try to manage yourself out of being a key part of the organization because as long as you're as long as you're a vital part of the organization you'll never ever be able to move on you'll be trapped and you'll be you know if you make yourself indispensable you'll never be able to move on which is might be good for your ego but it's not good for the organization i was just going to say it's just an ego thing a lot of people can't let go it's an ego thing it's an e- like they're too tied up ego wise into this venture whatever it is that mm. they can't um they can't but nobody else can do it it's i'm, I'm indispensable whatever all those things you said <laughs> exactly exactly the case fantastic well james thanks very much indeed for your time i think this is a good a good valuable note on which to end so um thank you so much for coming on the show and i hope no, for our listeners if they've got any listeners we'll put some links that james will share with us in the in, in the episode description and it, to the extent he wants us to <laughs> and then um you know if you want to follow up uh, or get back to us at the mbn uh with any questions or comments we'd appreciate it so thank you very much indeed